My prayer this morning for us as a community, as a church, as people from all walks of life, that um, we would just experience the liberating voice of God. Um, our topic in our discussion today really centers on something that I think is extremely important that has the potential to lead us to liberation no matter how you've walked into this church this morning, whether if you've given up on God and you're saying, I'm giving God one last chance and I'm here, God, do something. Or if you've walked with Jesus for many, many years, we all have that struggle on the inside to know if we have, the, have what it takes to measure up to God. And I hope today's conversation is liberating for every single one of us. I hope every single one of us can, at the end of this time, by hearing the voice of God, can arise and run to Jesus and be embraced by his arms. <laughs> and I don't say I pray for that, just halfway hoping that it happens. I'm begging Jesus for it this morning. Not because I'm special, because <laughs> I know I'm not, but he's pretty amazing. Um, pray with me as, as I just pray over the sermon today. Pray over us. Oh God, only you have the ability to change hearts. As a human, as a man, as a husband, as a father, I've tried many times to change people's hearts around me, and God, to no avail, you can't give me any kind of right words to convince someone of anything, but God, I've seen time and time again through your word and through how you play out in my life that you are the one alone who has the ability to change hearts and change lives, and I beg that you do this morning, no matter where we're at, no matter what our posture is, walking into this place, meet us where we are and drive us to the beautiful arms of our dear Savior. If we think we're good this morning, I pray you awaken our hearts to our sin nature, to our doubt, to the areas where we actually really, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't feel like we measure up to you and meet us in that place and draw us to the throne of grace by the faith that we have in your son, Jesus. We love you, and we're expecting you to do huge things today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Drake, man, thanks for leading us, man. Just uh, perfectly, just to that place of right where we need to be. Uh, we, uh, as a church, have been in a series uh, called The Five Solas, and we are in the third week of this series, um, and this is The Five Solas is something that is extremely important, or The Five Alones, it's something extremely important that happened in the history of the church. What we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks is that um, this is uh, 2017, the year 2017, where we're in today, in case you're a little lost. Um, this is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and that is big and huge news to us. The Reformation was a historical event that happened in church history, and not just any historical event, actually a pretty huge historical event. We all know 
that the head of the church is God himself through Christ Jesus. Scripture makes that really clear and really plain. I got news for you. All churches, including Harvest Community Church, were all led by sinners. Me standing on this stage, I'm not any different than anyone sitting in those seats. I have my own struggles. I confess daily where I fall short to God, and we know it. But this is the same thing that has happened for, um, this is the same type of people who've been leading the church from generation to generation. Well, in the 16th century, Martin Luther uh, saw something pretty important to where he saw the decline of the church as they moved away from God's word and they were moving more towards their own profit and more, their own benefit and to make their own name great. And as Martin Luther saw the name of God in scripture and wanted to make that central to everything, he was convicted by God, praise God that he was, stay, uh, stable the 95 thesis on the doors of the university and the church there. And he, we also get the these five solas from this times, or these five alones. The past two weeks, we've been uh, right here with sola scriptura. Again, the church left scripture. They started adding things to scripture. There was so much going on in history which allowed that to happen. We don't have time to unpack today. Um, but just know that they left scripture. So Martin said, man, this is huge that we are based our lives on God's word and God's word alone. And then the question comes, how are we saved? So we have God's word. How can we know this God? How can we find rescue? How can we find redemption? How can we find salvation? Well, there's sola gratura and sola fide. This is by grace alone, through faith alone, that we are saved alone. And so we talked about grace last week, and today we're sitting in sola fide, through faith alone. Uh, the followed, following two weeks, sola Christoris and sola de gloria are, are coming up. But these, this is why we've been sitting in this series. It's because it's the 500th anniversary. It makes a lot of sense for where we are today. And not only that, I don't think it's a 16th century problem that Martin Luther fixed. I think that we have the same problem today. Uh, these past two weeks have been really well done by our lead pastor, Matt Garino. If you're uh, visiting with us or you've missed the past couple weeks, I want to invite you to go back to harvestcc.org and find those on the, um, the web and just get caught up with why all five of these work together to paint a beautiful picture. Today we're going to be spending time, like I said, in sola fide, through faith alone, meaning that we are saved through faith alone. There is an extremely thin line between by grace alone and through faith alone. In a lot of ways, what last week's sermon was is part one of what this sermon is today, part two. And so uh, we could think about it as a coin. It's the same coin, just two different sides of the same coin. It's going to be hugely important for us to know the different sides, but see how they work together for a beautiful thing. As we move forward, it's got a question for you. Uh, have you ever actually been saved from a situation where you felt extremely helpless, where you just needed someone's help to get out of the situation you found yourself in? Maybe this was either a life or death situation, or maybe you got yourself into a predicament that you couldn't get out of, or maybe you just thought you were better at something than you really are, and you found yourself really struggling because of your own life choices. 
Well, one day in my life, I found myself in, in part C of, of those three um, uh, examples. Uh, I'll never forget, it was my, my sophomore year in high school, 1996, is, uh, the summer of 1996 is when the story took place. My family got invited to, uh, with another family to go to their cabin in the woods and just spend a long weekend hanging out with this family. My family didn't do this very often, so this was a really special thing. Thing for me, and I was like, this is awesome. We just get to go out and just be somewhere different rather than at home doing nothing or doing our normal life, right? Um, I'll never forget it, it was 1996 because uh, it, was, I, it was that trip that I was out in the middle of the woods uh, with no light pollution, and I saw the Hellbop, Hellbop comet for the very first time. Anybody remember the Hellbop? Is it, is, it, is it just me? Okay, okay, cool. Um, if you're young, it was a long time ago. I, this is the first time I'm like identifying with being like almost middle-aged. It's, it's hard for me. Okay, um, but moving forward, got to see that. But the Hellbop was not the only exciting thing that happened on this trip when I was out there. We were at this cabin, again, in the middle of the woods, and just a little bit away from where this cabin was, was a stream. Now, you got to realize, this is a stream in Texas. If you know anything about me, I'm, I'm from Texas. This is where I was at this time. In the Northwest, we have great glacier runoff, right, where the rivers are, are relatively shallow, super cold, and super clean to where you can drink out of, right? Um, at least that's what I do. I haven't gotten sick yet, so I don't recommend that, but that's just what, what I do. Um, but, you know, where we go fishing, and we just spend a lot of glorious time. This was Texas. It was a very wide uh, stream, river, stream. I'm not sure what to call it, but it was super brown. You would never, ever drink this. But it was deep, and so fishing boats would go up and down. Uh, they didn't fish for salmon. You fish for bass or catfish or something like that. Um, you know, the glorious fish of the South. Um, and uh, I, my dad and I had a great idea on this trip. This family that we were staying with owned a canoe, and uh, we thought to ourselves, you know what? We got some free time. We got an hour or two that we can just go out in the canoe. Um, I was a Boy Scout, and I had the, the canoeing merit badge. So I was like a professional canoeer, right? And so my dad was like leaning on me, Jordan, I need you. I'm like, yeah, dad, I'll be there for you. Um, and we jump in the canoe, and we just start going downstream. Yeah, this is wonderful. I don't, can't remember how long we were out, maybe 45 minutes, a little bit more than 45 minutes, and we're going, um, and then all of a sudden, about 45 minutes later, I think we were about four to five miles down the stream, you know, we're just having a great old time, and then it hit us. It hit us because we're men. It hit, it hit us because we didn't have a plan. We just went, and we just did, we sought adventure, it's great when you know what you're doing. I like to think that I knew what I was doing, but we got about four or five miles down and we realized the reason we got so far so quick is because the river had a current that took us that way. And we thought to ourselves, we got to be back in about an hour. How in the world are we going to get back? And so, again, if you don't know physics, river goes this way, canoe, no motor, just these things, right? Uh, don't go upstream super well. So uh, for about 45 minutes, we turn the canoe around, and we're paddling really hard trying to get upstream, and we're, we're making little progress, and then we get tired, and we go back. We make a little progress, we get tired, and we go back. And, uh, man, it was the most 
exhausting thing that I think I've ever experienced. And beyond that, that was probably the first time that, at least that I can, looking back on my life, that I felt extremely helpless. I'm like, how in the world are we going to get back to our family? Mom's going to be worried. She's going to call, want to call 911, but there's no cell phones, and we're in the middle of nowhere. I don't even know if this cabin had a phone in it. So that means no rescue is coming. Uh, we could pull over the boat on the side of the shore and just kind of hike back, but, you know, there was no, like, trail. It was in the middle of nowhere, this thick woods that were, that were out there and we're like uh, we're we're about to just bail on the whole thing and just start walking and you know take us another three hours to get back to the cabin maybe we might make it back we had no clue where we are you know we could look at the stars we just weren't that smart um and plus it wasn't dark so you couldn't see the stars but um <laughs> that's neither here nor there um when panic hit in for both of us, we're like, this is, this is reality, right, for us in this moment. Uh, a fishing boat came along. We hadn't seen a fishing boat all day long. A fishing boat came along. Hey, you guys okay? The man thing kicks in, right? Yeah, we're good. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Our pride was gone at that point. There was no pride left. Absolutely. We're not fine. Come help us, please. And so he uh, attached a rope to us and, and towed us upstream, and, and we, were, we were saved. And we, I can't remember if we actually told our, uh, my mom that story or not. I'm sure we did, but it wouldn't be uh, too unlike us to actually keep that to ourselves. And so, Dad, if you're listening to the podcast, sorry, I outed us. Um, man, this story really, in, in a cheesy and limited way, it, it reflects our need of being rescued. Man, but our situation that we find ourselves in today as humans, as humanity, it's so much deeper than the story that I just told. Uh, this last week's sermon was really, it, 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 it was all about grace. And today we're talking all about faith. And we need to understand God's role in our life and God's role in salvation for us to be rescued. Many of us, hypothetically, metaphorically, not hypothetically, metaphorically, are, are paddling upstream, trying to get our way back upstream, all on our own strength and our own power, and we are finding ourselves exhausted because we're trying to measure up to the standards that God has for us, and we absolutely cannot do it. That's where helplessness, hopelessness sets in, and God comes through and says, hey, I got rescue. I got this for you. Know me, know what I'm all about, and just roll with who I am in the midst of this and know more about me. And that's where we're going to go today. Grace ties into that, all about last week, this week, faith. What's the other side of this coin? Um, Martin Luther, in the midst of coming up with solo fide, um, he saw within the Catholic Church in 1517 that, uh, that the understanding uh, of grace and um, faith, uh, it, it, there was a huge problem within the church. Martin was a extremely, I don't know to call him Dr. Luther or Martin. I was pretending like we're friends and just call him Martin. Uh, Martin, was, he was an educated man. He was a monk. He was a theology teacher. He was absolutely no dummy whatsoever. Um, and one of the greatest teachings back in the 15th and 16th centuries that the, the church taught was, was that we are saved by God's grace through our righteous works done for God. Some of you may hear that and be like, amen, okay, that sounds good and sounds pretty, but that's, if, hear what's being said here, that we are saved by God's grace through our righteous work. Paddle harder, no more, just do it. If you do it hard enough, God's favor is going to fall on you and you will be right before him. 
That is not at all what Scripture teaches or what Scripture proclaims. Martin Luther, again, one of the most righteous men, one of the guys who did it all right almost his entire life, he felt gassed, he felt stressed, he felt hopeless, he felt depressed. If you read his writings centering on the Reformation, these are the things that you pick up from where he was in his spiritual journey of doing things the way that the church set up for him. Again, an extremely educated man, a theology professor, his boss, his supervisor told him to go teach the few books in scripture. Romans was one of those books and he was studying Romans and he knew Romans extremely well, but he got to one part in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 and 17 that overwhelmed him. He didn't know the meaning of what he was reading because of, he had this presupposition of what the church was teaching him. And he was reading it into scripture and it just didn't fit. It just didn't make sense on the context of what scripture was laying out. The scripture read, Romans 1, 16 and 17 reads, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith alone. He says that the righteousness of God, what is said right there in Romans 1.17, is what stumped him. It's because what his understanding of the righteousness of God was is that God is so separate from us and we just don't measure up that anytime you read the righteousness of God in Scripture, you were reading that this is the wrath of God against you and your works better be good enough to be able to earn his favor. And again, so stressed and depressed and not knowing if what he was doing was good enough, this just didn't make sense to him because this wrath of God revealed that we're seeing right here, the wrath of God revealed is for faith, is from faith, for faith, the righteous shall live by what faith? How did these two ideas connect? And praise God, God awoken his eyes to everything that was going on inside of scripture. I don't know about you, but I'm not seeing this as what I'm describing as just a 16th century problem. The thing about you and I is that we live in the 21st century and we know better. We are educated peasants, right? I mean, that's the way that they looked at it back in the 15th, 16th century. People going to church were just peasants. They weren't educated people. We're educated people. We know how to read. We know how to study for ourselves. We know what God is saying if we just open up the book and read it ourselves. But yet we still live in a way that we have to earn God's favor. Like we have to measure up to who he is. And my choice is how much do I need to have of this and so that God is not angry with me. We're living the same exact way that Martin Luther was fighting against during the Reformation. So that's why this sermon is so important today. Our um, Martin's quote that you can read in some of the literature he's written is this. He said, I had been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle of Romans. In other words, he, this wasn't his first pass at the book of Romans, but a single word in chapter 1, verse 17, uh, in the righteousness of God is revealed, it stood in my way. For I, I hated that word, righteousness of God, which uh, I had been taught to understand is the righteousness uh, with which God punishes unrighteous sinners. 
So let's get a right understanding of what faith is. And I'm going to give you a definition, and I know that this definition is going to be super simple, but let's unpack it. Faith is knowing that God is who he claims to be. Faith is knowing that God is who he claims to be. Again, I know this is simple. Sometimes we just need simple to understand something so profound. There's so much to impact with this thing. So the question that this begs to ask is, who does God claim to be through Scripture? Let's start with that word knowing. When we think about knowing God, we just think about knowing of God. I know of many of you in this room many and a lot of you in this room, but I don't know you intimately. My wife and I, there is a knowing that we have of each other that is different than the knowing I have of you in this room. There is a knowledge of her. I know her personality. I know who she is. I know what makes her tick. I know her weaknesses. And, you know, we're only 15 years in, and I'm still learning a ton about her. I'm not saying that I know everything about her. Men, pick up on that. Um, But I know my wife. But that's not just what this definition is saying. Don't just know about it. It's also submission. My wife and I have submitted to each other. We're saying, I belong to you and you to me. We have committed ourselves to each other. Whenever we fight, I say that I'm sorry often because I want to have a discussion, and she does the very same thing. We have submitted to the best for each other in the midst of that. Again, not perfect, far from perfect, but by God's grace, I think we're still in love. (laughs) Just kidding, we are. But then beyond that, there's trust. My wife and I are both humans. I know that sinful decisions can be made, but I trust that my wife right now is in Texas at her 20th high school reunion. I know nothing's going on there that I'm going to be unhappy with as her husband that's going to hurt me because I trust who she is. She has built this. We know each other extremely well, and that's what this definition is really pointing to, a deeper knowledge and a deeper understanding of knowing, knowing that God is who he claimed to be having knowledge of him, submitting to him, and trusting fully that he is who he claims to be. He is in you and through you who he claims to be. So we're going to be unpacking that idea for the rest of our time in Scripture. But seeing the difference between grace and faith, let's just look at a slew of verses. I'm sorry it's small, but I want to get it all on, on, one, uh, on one slide. So let's just see through faith how it's being worked out in our salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For grace you have been saved. What? Church, it's okay to interact with me. I work with youth. I work with teenagers. Okay, I'll start this again. For grace you have been saved. What? Thank you. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result, so that no one may boast. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been just, I'm sorry, since we have been, what? You guys are getting this. Okay, cool. Um, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Do you see what's going on in these scriptures? There's nothing we could do to earn the favor of God or be seen as right in his eyes. Romans 3.25, we are justified or made righteous by God's grace as a gift through the wrath-absorbing death and resurrection of Christ, which is received by faith. It's not a direct quote that is a summarization because it's, it's a long passage of Scripture, but there's, that's what it is saying. Romans 4, 16. 
This is why the promise of Abraham is depending on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Faith and grace, the same but very distinct and very different. Knowledge. Who is God? Who does he claim to be? Knowledge. Is that, um, is that what God requires from you, he gives to you. That's what we know about God. What God requires from you, perfect, righteous, without blemish, white as snow. That's what he demands from us to be in his presence. But what Martin Luther has seen in Romans is that, that what he demands or requires from you, he gives to you through what? Faith. Secondly, submission. Submission led to completely surrender to the beautiful gospel story. God from the Old Testament into the New Testament does not change. What he was setting up was so different, so it looks so different at first glance, but it is one beautiful giant story from beginning to end of God's rescue and redemption of what he is doing uh, in us and through us through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. And we are called to submit completely to this beautiful story that we find ourselves in and trust. We trust that nothing can snatch us out of the hands of the loving creator God. This is all biblical. This is all scripture. I'm not coming up with this on my own. I can point to a dozen different places for each one of these that says nothing could ever snatch you out of the hands of the Father. Once you submit and you trust him, nothing. That's the foundation of what faith is all about. And the gospel is extremely simple. It's so deep, but it's extremely simple. A lot like the ocean, right? You can walk into the ocean and stand with just toes in, or you can keep walking and go as deep, deeper than you could ever get by yourself. And the gospel is the exact same way, understanding it and knowing it and surrendering to it. It's just like standing on the shore of the ocean. But we can keep walking and know so much more. But let's just be simple for the sake of understanding today that this is what we're aiming for. We're going to be, for the rest of our time, in two different passages of Scripture. We're going to be in Romans chapter 4 and also in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, and I want to be able to just look at what's going on in Scripture centering around this idea. Romans 4, historically, I want us to see that this has been God's M.O. from the beginning, that we are saved by faith, not by works, not by the law itself. It has always been from the beginning about faith. In Hebrews 10, we're going to see how do we live this out in our own lives. Let's read, um, let's read Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So a huge question was asked here. Uh, if if Abraham wasn't saved by his works, if that didn't prove his righteousness, then what was it really all about? Again, verse 1, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, 
he has something to boast about. Again, going back to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, this is uh, verbatim what, it's, what Paul was saying in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's never about that. For Abraham was justified by works. He has something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Let's just stop there for a second. That verse 5 is key for us to understanding what God was doing in, the, in Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis and how he was saved before God in his eyes. It was by his righteousness, by, by the way that he believed God. So it says again, verse 5, to the one who does Sorry, who the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Then verse 6, Paul writing this book centers on Abraham. Then he goes, it wasn't just Abraham. It was also David who believed this very same thing. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. He says, blessed are those lawless deeds whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It's about God providing for you what he requires from you. Forgiveness, righteousness, a life completely covered by his grace. And it's that through faith we submit ourselves to this greater story. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Centering to the knowledge of God is the beginning of saving faith. And King David understood this in the very same way. This is, what the, this, this is what makes the gospel so crazy and so different from all other world religions out there. It's not about works. It's not about what you do. It's not about measuring up. It's about surrendering with faith that God is who he claims to be. He's going to cover you as he says he would through the blood of Christ. I can easily spend days and days in Romans chapter 4, even our community life groups, and they walk through their discussion. You're going to walk through unpacking Romans chapter 4 a little bit more and seeing Abraham in the book of Hebrews, how it all works together and what that really means in a deeper way. But moving forward for our time today, I want to move forward to how do we live in this faith? Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And what I want us to see there, um, God just encouraged me this week through what he was doing. We're going to start in verse 19 here in a minute. But what I want us to see in this, remembering the big idea, remembering the definition that faith is knowing that God is who he claims to be. What I want us to see, who does God claim to be? God claims to be righteous and God claims to be the rescuer. Let's see that in verse 19, 20, and 21 of Hebrews chapter 10. 
In my Bible, this is titled, again, this isn't part of the inspired word of God. Someone just put these titles in afterwards, but the full assurance of faith. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, What's going on here in these verses? And um, what, I, what is important for us to understand what the author of Hebrews is trying to do is he's claiming God's righteousness by pointing back to the Old Testament temple. The Old Testament temple was a place where God dwelled. And there was a room in the temple called the Holy of Holies that had a curtain that was separating the Holy of Holies from the, just the holy place. And so you could be in the first room, but you couldn't get to the area where God was without being struck down dead because that is where the presence of God was. So this veil or this curtain is what separated those two different rooms. So this is sharing to us the holiness, the righteousness, the perfectness of who God is. We have to understand God in his right place if we are to know who he is and what he claims to be. He is righteous. He is holy. He is all of that. He is the only one true God that has ever existed And that does still exist today. He is righteous. He is holy. More than that, he is also, and he claims to be, the rescuer. What Hebrews chapter 10, the verses we just read, what it's saying is that whenever Christ was put to death on the cross, whenever Christ breathed his last breath on the cross, the veil or the curtain was torn in half. Not by men who were angry, but by God himself ripped the curtain, split it in two, which then allowed access. Metaphorically, he was saying, you now have access to the holy of holies, the most holy place, through what just happened on Calvary. Christ's death and resurrection allows you to have that relationship with God. That's what God was communicating from the beginning of time. I'm sorry, he was communicating by that act. That God is righteous and he is holy, but he is also extremely personal as his plan continued to unfold through Christ as he becomes our rescuer. We continue reading. We see who God is. We see who he claims to be. And then he calls us with these three things that I'm just calling the let us. (laughs) Sorry, I'm pointing this. Forgot I had these in there. You can read them. Continuing on, what does this mean for us? How do we live in the midst of that? And this is what I love where Hebrews continues to go. Verse 22. If this is what we believe, if this is, what, if this is who we are as we surrender and we trust God and who he is, let us. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. Brothers and sisters in this room, there are many times 
that in our relationship with Jesus, we feel so far away from him. All that I've described up until this point, the negative aspects of the things, of the weight and the feeling of not feeling like we're measuring up to who God is, is extremely real. We doubt. We have questions. We don't know where we stand. God is calling us to draw near to him. As we draw near to who he is, this is where the assurance of our faith is found. In knowing God in his word, being in the midst of his presence, our sin tends to overwhelm us and draw us away from the presence of God and withdraws us into an apathetic lifestyle that we come to church on Sunday mornings because we know this is what we should do, but in the middle of the week, we just don't live for him. We don't know how, we don't know what, we just feel overwhelmed and we just don't feel like we, we feel like God's done with us because we focus on the sin. We're like, I just don't measure up. I don't have enough good in me that God's going to continue to love me or like me. That's not who God claims to be. Forgive me if I told this story before, but man, I, I love mountain biking. I love getting out in the mountains. And, and as I'm bombing down the hill, um, I love the technical stuff. I love when I have to go over roots and rocks and mist. But if there's two rocks on the trail, where I have to squeeze my bike in the middle. Uh, if I stare at the rock when I'm going down the hill fast, and I'm saying, don't hit the rock, don't hit the rock, don't hit the rock, don't hit the rock, what do I do? I hit the rock. Why in the world do I do that? I don't know. There's something going on chemically, I'm sure, in my brain. But whenever that, it happens frequently and often to where it, it led me to the point when I was writing one day, like, this is a metaphor of life. Because I know that when I'm bombing down the hill, if I keep my eyes 10 feet down the trail, that I see the rocks. I know where they're at, but I keep my eyes forward, and I miss the rocks every single time. I'm not exaggerating here. This is something that I've experienced in my own life time and time again, and I've applied this to my own personal life, and man, I found so much freedom in the midst of this. We stare at our sin. We stare at our personal rocks. And we're like, don't hit the rock. Don't hit the rock. Don't hit the rock. But what do we do? We hit the daggum rock every time. I don't know if I could say that, but I did. <laughs> Let us draw near with full assurance John Piper in a sermon once encouraged me. This isn't a quote, but this is what I took away. And man, it's found so much freedom is stop focusing on your sin nature and focus on Christ. When you focus on Christ, your love for him will grow so much more that the, 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 the sin that you choose to do will, go, will grow so much smaller. Stop focusing on the rock. Focus on what's more important. Draw near to God. If you got doubt, who cares? Draw near to God. If you got sin, who cares? Draw near to God. You know what I'm saying, who cares, tongue-in-cheek, right? Because it absolutely is important. But what's more important is that we look to the one that can redeem us and save us from that. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to struggle and sin if we do something about it, if we move forward. Well, what, what, what must we do as we continue to move forward? Leads us to the second, let us. Verse 23 let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. 
let us endure together. Knowing who God is, I'm, I, um, uh, I'm drawn near to him. I continue to know more about him, but I'm not going to let life continue to say I'm something whenever God says I am something completely different. I'm going to hold fast in the assurance of my faith that God is who he claims to be. I'm going to endure and move forward in my relationship with him. I'm not going to let Satan win that victory that he's going to whisper that I'm not good enough to God. Sure, I'm not good enough to God. No one in this room is good enough to God. But yet, what God requires from us, he gives to us through forgiveness. Super strange. Verse 24, the last one. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as uh, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This conversation that we've been having at Harvest about being disciples who makes disciples, it's not about being a perfect disciple who makes more perfect disciples. It's about people who are pursuing Jesus through faith and knowing who, that God is who he claims to be, and I'm going to bring others along with me as I do that. I'm moving forward and we need each other. Absolutely, we need each other because life is hard. Grace feels so far away. Our faith becomes weak at times, and Jesus even knew it as he encouraged someone he was talking to in the Gospels um, to, uh, oh, sorry, the person in the Gospels was declaring to, to Jesus that I, have, I believe, but forgive me for my unbelief. This is life. What do we do? How do we move forward we draw near, we hold fast, we spur one another on. If doubt overcomes us, that's right. I'm sorry, if doubt overcomes us, it's, it's because we're weak in one of these three areas. Again, I'm going to overgeneralize. But if we're weak, if we doubt, if we sin, it's because we're weak in one of these three areas. We all doubt, but it's about what you do with it. Just don't doubt alone. God never intended for you to do it alone. Be in community. If we're weak spiritually or one of these three areas, guess what? You're right where God wants you to be. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says, in our weakness, Christ is strong. There's something there with that. We have to live in that place of knowing that. We, we crumble because we depend on our own strength to get us through things. Brothers and sisters, that is not faith. That's trying really hard to do something God said you can never do on your own. Hebrews chapter uh, 11, moving beyond chapter 10 into chapter 11, going into the faith hall of fame is kind of what I've labeled it, is it defines faith for us. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. There's nothing in that about blind faith. Just believe, God will heal you. Just keep, move, just keep living life. There's nothing there in that. But when I have faith and I know who God is, I have full assurance of who I am. I'm a sinner that's saved by God's grace every single morning. And I have the convictions of the things that I, I can't see this, but that's my conviction. And I'm moving ahead. And by the grace of God, I have hope every single day. 
As I close and wrap up, we ask the questions, how much faith do we have to have? Or how much lack of faith can I have before God is actually done with me? I hope that the, everything I've set up until this point kind of answers those questions for us. But just to be blunt, it's not about that. We're asking the wrong questions if that's the questions we're asking. That is a 16th century way of thinking and not a biblical way of thinking. And I get it. We turn to Matthew 17, and Jesus is talking with his disciples. Jesus heals and casts out demons, and the disciples are saying, Jesus, why can't we do this? And Jesus says to them, well, it's because your lack of faith that you can't cast out these demons. Well, we go there, and we're like, how much faith do I have to have to cast out demons? I would love to be a part of, I would love to be a part of the supernatural about what God is. And so there's like a measure, right? So the, the um, disciples had this much faith, but they just needed a little bit more to experience God. And so that leads us to say, how much faith do I need to be okay? Or how much lack of faith before God is done with me? And we, what we miss is that this is, Jesus isn't giving them a measure He's not pointing to a measure. He's actually pointing directly to their hearts. They approached life at this point, and they were approaching the ministry of Jesus saying, I'm just going to fight hard enough, and I'm going to do it, and I just want to will the demons out of these people. And Jesus is like, you know what? It's never about you being there. It's about me doing it through you. He even goes on to say, how much faith do you have to have? You have to have faith like a mustard seed, Right? you've been around church, you know this is the smallest of all mustard seeds that Jesus is pointing to. This is the, the prime example that it's not about a measure at all. It's about the heart. And me and you, our hearts need to be transformed and changed so that we have faith moving forward. Faith in knowing that God is who he claims to be, holy and righteous, rescuer and redeemer, and we have no part of that. We are just called to draw near we are called to, um, to hold fast. We are called to spur one another on in the midst of that. Uh, as I close, where does doubt or sin or your spiritual journey overtake you? My challenge is, where are we weak? In drawing near to God? Where are we weak? in um, holding fast and enduring? Where are we weak? In living out my faith with others around me, asking questions where I doubt, actually living out loud with people and being real with one another. Where are you the weakest in your faith? And stop trying to be stronger in that area. But I do encourage you to be praying through that God would be your strength in the midst of those moments. Praise him for being weak because that allows him to step in and be strong as we grow in our faith. I'm gonna invite the worship team back up as, as I pray. We're gonna continue worshiping this God who saves, this God who redeems, this God who is righteous and holy in the faith in which he gives to us. And we just get to rest in it and sing to him for being all of this for us. God, thank you so much for your word who declares, which declares to us who you are. 
You are creator. You are above all of it, but you are not so far out of our grasp that we cannot know you. You have made yourself known. And God, may our faith strengthen. May we have assurance of our faith as we move forward in just knowing you. Get our our eyes, God. If you could just help us, please, to get our eyes off our rocks, our metaphorical rocks, and be able to just keep our eyes on the cross and be pursuing that as full force as we can. And I pray that when we do, we would just experience hope. Not that we would have all the answers. If we're pursuing all the answers, we're never going to be satisfied. But what we need is hope. As I was rescued, God, from that river, I pray that you would give us hope in who we are resting in you. And let us worship you for being holy and righteous and providing for us what we need moving forward. God, we love you. Strengthen us through the blood of Christ.